this is us. You're seeing us on the screen right there and right now. We'll give folks a moment to uh, to join. Um, I'm Mark Singer. I'm, I'm Dean of the School of Undergraduate Studies at Golden Gate University. And I'm really thrilled to be talking with Michelle Neitz, um, who is Professor of Law at Golden Gate University. Um, and we're going to be talking, well, it's right there on the slide, isn't it, on uh, blockchain. Um, and, and I'm hoping, because I, I was talking to folks about this beforehand, that um, if you don't know anything about blockchain, that you still showed up. I mean, if you didn't, then you're not hearing me say this. And then I should have really written this introduction a little bit more effectively than I did. And anyway, um, I'd really like to welcome um, Michelle Neitz right now. And um, we're going to um, um, start talking, right? Um, that's great. Oh, there you are. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm really excited to have you here. Um, I, I've been hearing about blockchain um, for the last couple of years in various contexts. I, I, contexts. I know there's something really mysterious about it, something to do with the dark web, I think. And, and uh, I don't know, Bitcoin, I could have made a lot of money on this a couple of years ago. Uh, about eight years ago, yeah, we would have made a um, lot. Missed my chance. So, you know, but the good thing about my not doing is that I get to be here with you asking you about it now. So that's, that's kind of a good thing. Um, so um, I, I understand you, you've, you've brought a, a sort of a presentation that'll help people, you know, visuals uh, always help people understand these concepts, but it is probably, there are probably a lot of levels at which we could approach this, right? I mean, it's a really all encompassing topic if you want to go that way or, um, but we don't have the time to do that today. So um, um, anyway, uh, one, can, can I ask you how, how you got interested in blockchain or how you came to be working on this? Sure, sure. So um, I've been teaching legal ethics at GGU since 2006, in addition to lots of other courses. And I actually first learned about blockchain technology because of my brother, who is a database architect. And he was telling us at Christmas dinner in 2017 that he was starting a new company that was um, related to blockchain technology. And no one at the table knew what he was talking about, which is very common when my brother starts talking about his tech jobs. And so he actually drew out for us on a napkin at Christmas dinner, this is what, what blockchain technology is, this is how it works. So in January, I thought, well, that's really neat. I'd like to take a look and see kind of what the laws are related around this, because it really seems revolutionary. And in 2017, there just weren't very many laws around this at all. And so um, it wasn't enough to teach a class. There were lots of proposals. There were a few states that were moving forward, but it just wasn't enough to put into a whole semester. So I waited um, and I continued my work on implicit bias and ethics. Um, and then I, let's see, it was early 2019. Things really started moving in California, especially around the regulatory side. And so uh, I really dove into this in January of 2019. Um, in August, I was named to the California Blockchain Working Group, which we'll talk about. And I presented uh, in about July or June or July to my academic dean, Mark Yates. Um, hey, I think we should teach a class on this. And so we, we, he said, sure. And so I actually taught the first class in San Francisco proper uh, on blockchain technology just this past spring at the law school. Wow. All right. So, so even though it's just been this year, you're sort of a pioneer in this regard. It's, things are moving fast. Things are moving really quickly. Yeah. So Berkeley and Stanford have blockchain courses, but um, there's Man. no other dedicated law class. A lot of them are overlap classes between law and business and others. And, you know, we've talked about that at Golden Gate about turning my class into something like that. Oh, that's great. And I, I know, yeah, there's certainly a, a ton to talk about for the, the legal aspects of blockchain. All right. And 
we've also, and I, I hope we'll have the opportunity to get into talking about the other implications for blockchain that, that extend beyond the law and, and, and ethics, of course. So um, did you, maybe before we go any farther, we should explain to people what this is? Great idea. Blockchain in five <laughs> minutes, right? Um, minutes. Not, not that easy, but I think we can swing it. So I'm going to share my screen and show these slides, which are very similar to the ones that I actually showed my students uh, when we first started uh, my first class and in trying to introduce law students to this because a lot of my students had no exposure to technology at all. Um, so I'm going to start with something that seems sort of funny, which is what are called rye stones from the island of Yap. So Yap is an island where um, the traditional population there has used a currency called rye stones. This is a picture of a rye stone. The rye stones never actually move. I mean, imagine trying to move some, a stone of that size. Um, and they're different from traditional currency in that way because you can't hand a rye stone to someone like you could a coin, right? Or a dollar bill or something like that. Rye stones are gonna stay where they are. Um, so the way it works as a currency is that the villagers, the, the people who are on this island, they keep it, there's dozens of these stones scattered around the villages, and they keep track in their heads of who owns which rye stone. So when someone buys something, the buyer announces, I'm transferring this rye stone um, to the seller, and everyone in the village updates in their heads, okay, so that rye stone now belongs to this person. It's done through an oral history, essentially. Um, now everybody's updated their mental records and everybody knows who owns this rye stone. And there are two important aspects of this if you want to understand this in the context of blockchain technology. And I, I got this rye stone example from Neil Mehta's book, um, which, blocked, uh, which is a book that I actually assigned to my class. Um, so the two important things are, first, they're intangible, right? In the sense that you can't walk around and hand them over to somebody the way you could a, a quarter or a dime or whatever. The other part of this is that it's decentralized. There's no log book on the island that says this rye stone is owned by this person. There's no third party or centralized authority who's keeping track of who owns which rye stone. The villagers all keep this in their heads. It's entirely mental records. They're essentially folks tracking ownership through consensus. Consensus is a very big word in blockchain technology, right? So everyone agrees on who owns which stone. Um, blockchain basically takes this idea and applies it to ledgers of transactions. So you could think about a blockchain as a spreadsheet that's tracking different transactions. And we'll talk at the end of this about different use cases that you could use for blockchain. So, um, you know, you've heard about the Bitcoin ledger. There actually could be a blockchain ledger for almost any industry. Right. So one of the things we'll discuss that's actually happening with the pandemic right now are supply chain on blockchains. So you'd be able to track which where the medical supplies are because it's decentralized. You don't have to. There's no one authority that you would call and say, what happened to my masks? You would be able to see it on this decentralized database. Um, so here's for the techies out there. I just thought I would throw this in, but we don't have time to get into this in great detail. Um, so how, so how do you think of it? Think of it as a global spreadsheet. Now with a blockchain like the one that Bitcoin or Ethereum are running on, it's essentially a situation where you're able 
to download because it's it's software open source software you're able to actually download that to your computer and this would turn you into what we call a node so there are computers that the bitcoin transactions are actually being stored on computers all over the world right so it's a decentralized database and the way and i don't have really time to get into the algorithms and how exactly the hashes work in my class we actually i show them exactly how the hash would work um, we use these cryptographic functions to try to ensure that there's integrity of this data and we also use it to authenticate the identity of the data so i decided just quickly to go through the characteristics of what you should see in a public blockchain why are these so special why can they be used in so many different ways so the first part is what i was just discussing the idea of them being distributed right running on computers all over the world means if there's a blackout in New York or in San Francisco, Bitcoin is still going to run, right? There's no central point of failure. And frankly, given everything that's happened with natural disasters in the last 10 years, the idea of a distributed ledger without a central point of failure, or some would say a central point of corruption, is a really desirable thing, right? Um, it's also public. You right now could, once this webinar is over, log on, view the Bitcoin blockchain because it's residing on this public network. And so there's transparency involved with this. Um, it's also encrypted. So it wouldn't be very helpful if it was public and transparent and anybody could go in and, and remove your, um, your sale, your Bitcoin sale that you had done, for example. These public and private keys, which I don't have time to get into right now, are used to maintain security. So it's encrypted. And lastly, it's also immutable. So for the Bitcoin, if you wanted to steal a Bitcoin, you would essentially have to go back and change the code in all of the neighboring blocks. So what my brother drew for me was uh, a square with like 10, or you know, could be any 250, whatever it is, depending on the blockchain, numbers of transactions in it that is immutable. The next block builds on the first block. So in order to change a transaction or to steal, for example, a Bitcoin or some Ether or whatever happened that you wanted to steal, you would have to change the information in the block and all of the blocks that followed, and it would have to go backwards. You'd have to change the neighboring blocks. But remember, it's transparent, it's public. So everybody would see you doing this. So to steal a Bitcoin, you'd have to go on and do it in front of everyone which practically speaking is very difficult to do, right? Because you'd have to change all the nodes there in the chain. So my summary is that blockchain is essentially, this is a, from the Don Tapscott and his son Alex, uh, a book called Blockchain Revolution. It is a distributed ledger representing this network consensus. Everyone is agreeing, it's global, it's on everybody who happens to be a node representing every transaction that has ever occurred, right? Now, there are other types of blockchains. There are, um, I'll get to the use cases in a moment, there are also permissioned blockchains where companies are using blockchain to try to track, for example, their supply chains. They're, they're selecting in advance or they're selecting as they go who is allowed to be a node. So there is an extra layer, there's an access layer on a permission blockchain where you know JP Morgan can choose who's gonna be a node. So, me sitting in my garage is not going to be a node, right? So that's like a closed system that's separate from this one, but it uses the same 
approach, I guess. Same you... approach as a decentralized database, it's yeah. a, but it's more centralized, right? Because there's a part, there's an authority figure who's yeah. choosing who's going to have access, right? Okay. Thanks. Um, and then my last slide essentially is about what are we using this technology for? So cryptocurrency is the one that everybody heard about in the beginning. Um, it's certainly being used. Uh, global money transfers are a big issue, especially, you know, in finance issues. There's a lot of companies like Ripple, for example, in San Francisco that's working on um, making global money transfers happen very quickly over a blockchain. Um, anything that has to do with records that are stored on a database. So California is talking about putting um, vital records on a blockchain, your birth certificate, your marriage certificate. Um, you might be, we might in, a, in, you know, sooner than we think, be in a position where your healthcare records are being stored on a blockchain that only you can access with your private key so that you can, basically can carry your health records around and have access to them instead of having to call a doctor to get them. Mm -hmm. Same deal with educational records. You know, there's talk about putting, um, having people have their own individual university transcripts is so that if I want to transfer from university to university or if I want to include a certificate that I got from a different school, I can put that on my blockchain. I have access to it. I can grant access to any other school that I want to apply to. I don't have to go back to my university and ask them to give me a transcript. Um, okay. So supply chains, you know, ethical fashion, we're headed toward a world where you would be in a position when you're in a store and, and you want to know where this t-shirt came from you could scan a barcode that would give you access to a blockchain that tells you it was made you know in this village in i don't know say bangladesh it it was um then put on a ship at this port it then sailed to the port of oakland at the port of oakland it was then transferred to this store and you know here are the people who worked on the shirt and you'd have access to that just with a like a qr code um, wow. So can I ask you a question right now? Um, and I, I, I wish I had actually got the citation right in front of me, but th there was a, I remember about two years ago, somebody who was active in cryptocurrency died very young and um, nobody could find his key. Yes. And, and he had like, like terrible that he died. This has come up a lot actually though, with even some, uh, <laughs> I mean, interrupt you, but like somebody who threw his USB drive away. Yes, yes exactly. Uh, yeah. That mm -hmm. was another one I heard of. And so they, they were unable to recover. It was something like over $100 million. I, mm -hmm. I didn't find out whether that eventually got resolved, but for months, I know there was just no way to get that uh, access to his accounts. Is, is that a problem or is that something? Oh, yeah, I mean, if you're going to buy a Bitcoin, you need to write down your private key and store it in you know your home safe, a bank deposit box. Um, some people have just put it on a US, as I was referencing, a USB flash drive. Those of you who have watched the show Silicon Valley might remember a character who, who um, threw away his, his housekeeper threw away a pair of jeans that had a USB drive in it with like you know $100 million in Bitcoin on it. And that's actually, um, as an Ethereum engineer told me, that's actually a true story. You can look that up. It's the story of a man in England who threw out a USB drive he was able to track it to a dump in England that was owned by the city, a municipal dump. He tried to buy the municipal dump so that he could go through it like inch by inch. It was worth it to him. And then he crowdsourced the purchase of the dump saying, if you give me money to buy the dump, I will give you a share of the Bitcoin once I locate my flash drive and I can get it back. Um, and I don't think the crowdsourcing worked oh. because actually the municipality said, we're not selling our dump to this 
Bitcoin millionaire who threw out his name. Voting. Voting is a big one right now. Um, you're going to hear yeah. a lot about that in 2020. So, and I was actually in charge of the voting uh, report for the California Blockchain Working Group. And as a result, I, you know, my co-author and I did a lot of research around voting. I talked to some um, cybersecurity experts, all of whom essentially universally told me we're not ready for blockchain voting. We're not even ready for online voting because there's actually several points at which it could be corrupted. And I can get into that if, we, if you wanted to talk about the way blockchain works with voting. But I, I, we're recommending, the working group is recommending, um, there's tangential areas where you might be able to use blockchain in the electoral system, but to have us actually sitting in our homes voting on a smartphone is not as secure at the moment as we'd like. Well, I guess there are intervening um, things between you and the blockchain that, that could conceivably be compromised. Is that, is that what it is or? Um... Yes, it, the hacking potential is pretty yeah. extraordinary. I mean, what if, I, what if I'm able to hack your phone and I multiply that by a million people? Or what if I'm able to hack your vote when it's in transit to whatever clearinghouse you're sending your vote to, right? Or what if I'm able to hack the clearinghouse? Um, what if I'm able to not just steal votes, but manipulate votes, right? So you thought you voted one way, a hack happens at the clearinghouse level, and now you have voted a different way. The other thing it really risks is anonymity. America has a very strong um, history and tradition of anonymous voting. Mm -hmm. So if someone can hack uh, at any of these points of failure, if someone could hack in and see who I voted for, that could later be used against me, right? It raises all, once you get out of anonymous voting, it raises all sorts yeah. of concerns. But now I understood that um, these, um, like for Bitcoin, for instance, it, you know, it, it is essentially a database of every purchase that's ever been made using Bitcoin, but that while they're all recorded there, you couldn't really figure out who had bought what uh, because they're coded in some way, they're encrypted, I guess. Is that correct? Correct. So a hash is used to mask your identity, right? Okay. Now, I will say this, they're encrypted. It's what we call pseudonymous. It's not completely anonymous. So if, if you really, and like just ask the FBI, if you really wanna find out who's sending these transactions, it's actually possible for you to be able to do that. So, um, hmm. so the hash, the, I'm not gonna get too deep in the weeds on hashing. I certainly could, but I, I, I don't know that that's a great <laughs> idea right now. I did, actually my class and I, we did spend some time hashing on a computer so that you could see exactly how the hash works, um, what the algorithm is. It's essentially though that the algorithm can actually be traced and you raise an interesting issue because a recent bill that was proposed in the, by the federal, in the federal Congress um, is a bill that is, it's called the Cryptocurrency Act of 2020. And it actually provides for the potential to trace cryptocurrency transactions for law enforcement. And privacy experts are really outraged at this. There's gonna, if this bill moves forward, there's gonna be a massive debate about this because the purpose of using a cryptocurrency for a lot of people is that pseudonymity. Um, and right. so we'll see. I mean, there's a real, you know, regulatory agencies and um, crypto fans, there's a lot of conflicts um, coming down the pipeline with that. Yeah, and also this is not, within any national system this is international right so so um for them to be able to get access to this sort of thing would suggest that they would have access to this international database of records right uh i mean conceivably 
So this is a great big legal question that you've just asked because it's a jurisdictional question, right? So, um, and what it has provided is a chance for jurisdictions to race each other for cryptocurrency business. So the, the, you're absolutely right, it's a global thing. And there are jurisdictions who are very restrictive about who, like New York actually is a jurisdiction that's very restrictive on whom can sell cryptocurrency to their citizens. You have to get a bit license in New York. Um, but the states that are winning it are, the, the jurisdictions that are winning it, are uh, internationally Estonia, Singapore, and Switzerland are really the top three. Um, and then in the US, Wyoming is just racing ahead. Um, they passed 13 cryptocurrency bills, or 19, I can't remember, I think it was 19 cryptocurrency bills last year. Um, mm -hmm. They are really attracting business. And I met an attorney who moved from New York to Cheyenne, Wyoming, because Wyoming, she told me, this is where it's at. This is where the exciting stuff is happening, is in Cheyenne. Um, all right, you're not affiliated with any real estate agency or anything? I am not at all, okay, no. I don't like winter. I don't right. like winter, so. <laughs> Great. Oh, so, Michelle, before you go any further, I just want to uh, remind folks. Um, we are, oh, that's great. Um, oh, thanks, okay. So, um, thanks, that was really helpful. So, uh, there's, in other words, it's a chain of blocks that contain these transactions and records, and that's where the name comes from. And just exactly. to summarize that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not just playing dumb here. I really am trying to figure this out. It's, so uh, It's no. a very difficult learning okay. curve. Like that was a, it's not, and you know, I don't have a computer science background. I just know a lot of people in the city with computer science backgrounds. And so when I had, when I was researching my article on ethics of blockchain that I have, I'm kind of developing a, a niche in, I had folks I could call and say, this is what it looks like to me. Is this right? And, you know, a lot of very kind people would help me out and say, actually, you're right. This is what's happening here. So, or you're wrong. This is not what's happening here. So that was helpful. No, we should have some sense of how this works. We can't just leave it to the technical experts, you know, of course. So, um, all right, I just want, before we go on, I started to say, if people have questions and I already see one or two have popped up, um, um, put them in the Q&A um, box that's down at the bottom of your screen as opposed to the chat. Um, and then we'll be able to process those uh, those questions and, and I'm hoping we'll have enough time to to get to some of them. Sure, so, so thanks. So um, you know, so one question that, that comes to mind right away is, um, all right, so you've mentioned uh, you know some of the use cases that, and this looks like it could be used in a lot of different ways. Um, um, it's some, something that I had uh, been reading about some time ago because I'm in higher ed was the way that I'm um, thinking about how blockchain might be used for educational records. Like, it could conceivably change the whole way we use and communicate uh, transcripts uh, between institutions, right? It, is that something that's that's sort of gaining any, uh, gathering steam at all, or is that just one of the many things people could do? No, I mean, it's interesting to see what's happening with these use cases. So the pandemic has changed things, right? It, certain use cases are moving forward much quicker, like, much quicker, much quicker than others. So like supply chain use cases are just off the charts right now, really exciting stuff happening with that. Um, MIT, not surprisingly, who is very active in the blockchain space and the artificial intelligence space, they have been issuing diplomas on a blockchain since 2017. Um, and so there, you know, there's a lot of the sort of traditional leaders that you would think in this. Uh, but I will say, I think what's cool about it is that as people start to think about ways in which they wanna complete their education, they may not want to have it all at one institution, right? 
So you might want to get your, I don't know, your finish your undergraduate degree at Golden Gate and then get a certificate from another university in some specialized area that you want. Now, if you wanted to prove that you have the degree and the certificate, you need to cobble together, right, your transcript from Golden Gate and your certificate from this place. But if you could put it on a blockchain that you have the private key for, you then could access it whenever you want and you could share it whenever you wanted with whomever employer or next university or whatever it happens to be that you're going to be um, looking oh. to enter. And so um, now again, private keys, as you, as you said, security problems, right? If you lose your, don't lose your transcript, right? Um, um, but you know, that's kind of where there's anytime you have a ledger of transactions or any sort of database, you can ask yourself, is this a situation where blockchain could work? Sometimes the answer is no, right? Like sometimes you just don't need it. Um, like voting, I would argue, and this is not the California Blockchain Working Group's official opinion, but in my opinion, I don't think we're ready for voting. I think it's too vulnerable right now. I don't think blockchain is a good use for voting. Um, you know, there, are actually the blockchain working group investigated firearms that like tracing, tracking firearms on a database on a blockchain. Um, that's unlikely to be a good use case for us in the future. Um, but what I found in doing research for this group is archives, state archives are a wonderful pilot project for California to do. I'm actually recommending to the working group and hopefully in the, our final report in June, the working group is recommending to the legislature that the state archives department think about putting archives on a blockchain. Because wow. you could have multiple nodes, you could, you could actually share this blockchain with different states so that different states could put archives on the same blockchain. We could have a California blockchain where you would put different county archives, could have multiple nodes, multiple um, distributed nodes putting their archives on a blockchain. And the immutability of blockchain is really exciting to the folks at the state archives who I spoke with about this. That's great. So wait, you, you've actually jumped out ahead of me, which I'm not complaining oh, about. Okay. No, 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 <laughs> totally fine. Cause like that's less for me to do. That works out really great. Uh, um, <laughs> um, but, so I, I see where we actually are getting some questions here, but I, I did want to ask you just generally, what is the California blockchain working group? I mean, I mean you've, you've mentioned it a few times. That's, that's what I was referring to. Is that a governmental organization or can you talk about that and how you ended up uh, working with those folks? Sure, sure. So um, actually last year, the California legislature passed legislation, um, or maybe it was passed the year before that, that basically convened a working group and said, we need to move forward with blockchain in California. We don't know how to do it. We need to compile a group of experts together that will help us figure out how to do it. And so I applied to be on, on the blockchain working group and I was thrilled to, to be selected as a legal representative. I'm one of three uh, legal representatives on the working group. Um, and there's 20 of us and we come from all different backgrounds. There's lawyers, there's technologists, there's a city council member from Berkeley on it. There's just a really exciting group of people who are coming together to think about how California could use blockchain. Um, in various industries, you know, I mean, multi, like 15 different use cases. Um, all of our meetings are public. All of our meetings are available on um, the California Blockchain Working Group website, if you Google that. And mm -hmm. all of our, and our draft reports are available. We're finalizing our report in June. We'll send it to the legislature and they're gonna hopefully start passing legislation related to, based on what's in the report and related to it uh, in 2020. 
And it sounds like it covers a, a wide range of topics. It's not just currency. It's, it's, it's all the different things you're talking about. All kinds of things. Actually, on Tuesday at 2 o'clock, we're having our finance and commercial subcommittee draft report meeting. And that's a public meeting on Zoom if folks wanted to be involved. There's even a proposal to create a CalCoin, um, a, a state oh. digital currency um, that wow. we're talking about on Tuesday. Well, wow. all right. Well, maybe if, if, if you don't mind, maybe if you give me the link to that, we can put that in the notes uh, that we'll post after this. So that's great. All right. So there are a ton of questions, and okay. which, which I think means either we're doing a great job and people are really excited about this or they have no idea what we're talking okay. about. <laughs> could go either way, I guess. Yeah, let's, let's see what happens. So, but one, one of the questions is related to one I was thinking of, um, just going back to what you were originally talking about when you were explaining what the blockchain is. I was thinking that it probably takes up a lot of space on somebody's computer. Uh, you know, if you're a node, it's not something we could have done even like 20 years ago because most personal computers wouldn't have had the capacity or hard drive space. I, I don't know if that's true, but do you have a sense of that? Is that, um, and, and then the, the related question is, does this take a lot of energy to run this? And so maybe there are some environmental mm -hmm. concerns related as well. Sure. So to the first question, I will tell you that um, the days when you and I could download the Bitcoin software and mine it on our computers are sadly over. Um, actually, Bitcoin mining has really been um, subsumed by these kind of major server farms internationally that are really making, who are really mining most of the Bitcoin. And, and if you want to go really technical, the Bitcoin halving that just happened is actually knocking a lot of home miners um, out. You can join a mining pool if you want to mine Bitcoin, but I'm getting a little technical on that front. And the idea was you could actually find it hidden somewhere, right? If you were mining it, right? At some, at you would be running, you would be running the hash, your algorithm, you'd be running the algorithm to try to get the right hash for that block. And if you were able to get it, then you were rewarded with Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, but the sustainability, now there's all kinds of other cryptocurrencies, right, out there. But the Bitcoin one is that ship has sailed for just folks like you and me, right? Um, now, I will say, though, the sustainability issue is a big one, and it's one that we've talked about in the working group, actually, and that some of my students, um, you know, we really discussed in class as well, because the amount of electricity and energy that was required to run, you had to have special BTUs. It's a whole thing, right, um, that I don't have time at the moment to get into, but it was, I mean, Iceland is a place where a lot of the server farms went to because it's cold and these servers run hot. And if you can find a cold space with cheap electricity, um, so Western Washington State, Iceland, places like that, um, there started to be a lot of real concerns about sustainability. It's a great question. It's one that I'm advocating that we make rules for the state of California with those principles in mind, but there's not an easy solution. Oh, okay. Thanks. No, that's, there's a lot there. I th we need to have like a part two and three here to really, <laughs> I just hope you're not busy for the next couple of months. I think we have a lot. Of <laughs> um, so, so here's a, another question. I'm just going to go right to these. Sure. Um, and, and tell me if any of these is like something you don't really want to talk about, but it'll be too late. Everyone will know. So that's probably not a good plan. Um, so, so as far as, uh, I, I imagine that this is leading to different careers, uh, career possibilities. Um, so there are sort of two related questions here. What are those possibilities and are there already emerging like certificate programs or training programs for that? Or is it still kind of a seat of your pants, uh, figure it out on your own kind of? An, uh, uh, so when it comes to career paths, this is the reason I started teaching blockchain law. Because to find lawyers who understand blockchain, 
Um, someone told me in San Francisco, it's extremely difficult. It's like, you know, as, as I like to say, if you're good at math and technology, you probably didn't go to law school, right? Or that's changing a little, but like historically, lawyers were really good at writing. We're not as good at the math and the technology part. Uh, so that's why I started this class was to try to get, um, to try to create lawyers who understood this technology and are really employable as a result of it. Um, the demand for blockchain developers, if you're talking about non-law careers, um, blockchain developers is a field that is absolutely exploding. So I just saw this morning in Canada, in the last year or two, the demand has gone up by 374% in Toronto for blockchain developers. There's money in this industry because it's going to touch so many different use cases that lots and lots of startups are, are involved in it, but also traditional companies that, you know, like, need to have some knowledge of what this is because it might really help their supply chains or it might really help their make them more efficient in some way. Um, so the second part of your question is about certificates. Um, and the answer is there's lots of them out there. Um, there's lots of them in, you know, I mean, Berkeley does certificates that York University in Toronto, the reason I heard about this demand is because they just announced in the fall of 2020, they're going to be offering blockchain certificates. Um, there's a, there are certificates. I would just caution, make sure you're getting a certificate that is going to A, teach you what you want, uh, what you want to learn, and um, B, is from an, an institution that you know is a viable institution. And some of them, I guess, will be focused more on legal. Some of them might be more focused on supply chain, that sort of thing. So um, you want to know that if you were pursuing something like that. Right. We, don't, we don't do anything like that here, do we? I mean, we have your course. Sure. Okay, I have plans. I have plans. So okay, we'll see. We're not jumping down on that, are we, by mentioning that? Um, okay, so let's see. Um, what, so there were a couple questions about um, what you mentioned about the, the working group. So, so one is, um, you mentioned CalCoin, which you might have just meant to say something about in passing, but um, would that interfere with federal rules about uh, currency, or would that be similar to bonds um, that the state could use to, to sell to increase investments, that sort of thing? So that's a really good question. And that's another one that's gonna take me 10 minutes to answer properly. So- well, um, anonymous person, so I don't know. Okay, so to the anonymous person, I would say, there's a whole report about this on the Blockchain Working Group website. And if you're really into this, read the report and come to the meeting on Tuesday with questions to ask the state because um, there are gonna be some legal and regulatory challenges around this. It would be an interesting world if everyone created their, if every state created their own coin, you know, that would be, a, weird world to live in but there's talk about we could also potentially limit who gets to purchase the coin that maybe it's only for california residents i don't know the answer the short answer to your question is yes it presents all kinds of issues the federal reserve is actually considering doing a digital dollar um they're actively looking into that and there's talk that we may have um a digital dollar in short like a, a digital central bank currency um, that is on the horizon. So it may not just be states, it may actually be the feds. China also, I, this is a long answer, but China also is looking into a digital yuan. I, I do think this is where most um, governments are headed. Great, I, I just put a link to the, um, to the webpage for the um, blockchain working group in the, uh, in the chat if anyone's interested in pursuing that because I, I see we had a couple of questions expressing interest in, in looking at some of the reports and things oh, like that. Oh good, and I have to add one more thing the privacy concerns related to digital currencies that are issued by states or by cover, you know, federal governments are enormous. And so that's a whole can of worms that I can't get into, but that 
So you consider that. And talk about then there then what we can. Um, but so, but a question that I definitely wanted to ask you is like you mentioned that you what you were doing was working on uh, implicit bias and ethics and clearly you're touching on a number of the ethical implications for for blockchain. Is there a direct connection between what you were working on before and this, or is it just, well, you know, your brother, you're trying to keep up with him or? No, 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 good question. <laughs> um, so I'll never keep up with him. I already know that, so I'm not worried about that. Um, no, actually, the way, it, the way they came together for me was that as I learned more and more about the way these, like for example, Ethereum, right, which is a cryptocurrency, the way Ethereum is working is actually less decentralized than people think. There is a group of agents who are influencing decisions on this public blockchain. So my next question, like whenever I hear of humans making decisions, I think, are there biases that aren't being addressed? What's their conflicts of interest? Um, right around the time I was thinking about this, when I was drafting something last summer, Libra came out, Facebook's Libra. Like the amount of ethical issues in Libra are just, it would make your head explode. And so I really did start to think like, wow, no one, is anybody making this connection? And the answer is some, very few people were making that connection. No lawyers that I saw were making the connection between ethics and blockchain. So I published a law review article on the topic that's been getting traction. Um, and so that's part of how I ended up on the blockchain working group is that I was already exploring these issues. So it sounds like there would be a need for regulatory agencies to weigh in on this. It's, it, right now, it's still fairly open, but I mean, if there are these ethical questions, there are probably some other things that can well, This is a good chance to tell you that California is the first state in the country to um, actually consider ethical issues at this very early stage of regulation. And they're going to move my ethics section, the, the section I drafted, up much higher in the report so that like we'll establish an ethical framework that all other decisions will be made from. Um, that just happened last Friday and that is very exciting to me because it means California is really gonna be a leader in the ethical development of this technology. Ah, that's great. So, so that'll definitely set us apart from, I don't know, Wyoming, for instance. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen a lot going on. I, you know, there's a lot of really good people working on blockchain in Wyoming, oh, but- No objection, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Um, all right, so uh, let me see. We've got a couple of other uh, questions. Oh, so all right, here are two related questions. One person wants to know where do they get blockchain? Do you just go to Coinstar and, and you know, plug where in? they get Bitcoin? Blockchain oh, and Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, yes, that's okay. Bitcoin. I um, yes. Okay, so there are a lot of exchanges that will happily sell you um, blockchain. We actually have a student who uh, used to work at Coinbase. Um, and so that's an exchange that you could use. I'm plugging them because they hired our student, our, one of our night students in the law school uh, there. Um, there's a lot of different exchanges and so you can take a look and see. Um, and essentially you will have some know your customer regulations, some compliance issues in the US. Um, there are some cryptocurrencies that you can't buy as a US citizen because these cryptocurrencies have chosen not to comply with US regulations around mm -hmm. cryptocurrency and so, um, but the big ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff like that, you could just buy off an exchange. I had heard of, I, I'm sure I heard this, of an ATM that uh, dealt with- yes, the, there are key, They call them, yes, the kiosk, the ATM yes, kiosk so. that, um, that sell crypto is another way to do it. Right, and then- and, uh, currency, I feel the need to not giving out financial advice. No, exactly. Very speculative currency. No one knows what's going to happen with it. So much you don't need for your rent if you're going to do it. We're not making any money off this. We don't want to be sued. <laughs> so, but but one related question here. I this is a great question. Do you yourself own any um, cryptocurrency? That's a great question. 
I was gifted a Bitcoin many, you know, several years ago when it was um, uh, not at the current levels that it's at today. So, uh, but I, I haven't bought any others. Um, it's a it's a very speculative currency. I'm intrigued by it, um, but I'm not. I, I definitely have not put my 401k in it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Great. Um, we have a couple more questions, but I, uh, I just want to make sure that I'm uh, thinking about our time frame as well, because I know we both have to, uh, we have other things going on today. Um, oh, all right. So getting back to the question I had asked about transcripts, uh, and, and this would apply to health records too, which you also mentioned as, as a possible use for, uh, um, for blockchain. Um, how would that work? I mean, I, so one of the reasons we were interested in it is because um, at the undergrad level Gold, at Golden Gate University, we have a lot of students who have been at a number of different institutions. They, you know, they've been in the military, they've taken a course here, a course there. And so this would, seems like it would be a great way to, um, to pull all their stuff together. How would then a university be able to be part of that? How would they manage that, I guess? And, and likewise, hospitals or other kinds of healthcare agencies. Yeah, so the short answer is consortia are developing that uh, universities are able to sort of access the technology together. Um, you would not need to build your own blockchain in order to do this. Uh, so GGU doesn't have to build its own. Um, it's that you just asked me a very technical question that I, I know we don't, have, again, I keep saying I don't have time to get into this. The truth is I don't actually know the technical part of exactly because I'm not a developer. I don't know exactly how you would build it. I can tell you that you don't have to know how to build it. There are consortia of universities and there's also companies like Hyperledger that are providing the technology that you could use. Uh-huh, all right. So there are already ways that they're trying to speak to consumers and, and, and organizations like ours where, yeah, we might need this, but not have to, not be able to do it ourselves, I, I guess. And right, and you might pair up with other universities that are doing this as a consortia and, and try to create something like that. Uh-huh. All right. Great. So, so one of the, uh, two more questions. So this is good. I think this means these are, you know, these are good questions. I think this means this is, we've really great. done something here. Um, but besides ethical issues, um, are there other, uh, and privacy concerns, things like that, are there other constitutional issues that this edges toward, you know, um, examples of government takings is, that sounds like a law student or law professor who said that. Um, you know, or how, how does the government tax blockchain? Is that a concern? Oh boy, these are great big questions. And actually, um, my students wrote about some of these and some of the papers from my class are now on digital commons at Golden Gate. And so you could actually access my students' papers. Like one of my students explored the uses of blockchain and tax uh, by the IRS. And so I posted that, that is actually up on um, digital commons. So, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of legal issues. A lot of it has to do with how you define cryptocurrency. Is it a property that someone is holding? As some states are refusing to do that, some states are doing that. What we need is the federal government to declare exactly what a cryptocurrency is. And that's actually something that they're trying to do with this cryptocurrency act. But I mean, we're at a definitional problem with blockchain. Like we, you know, California has spent a lot of time figuring out what our state definition of blockchain will be. Um, so the short answer is that you will need to um, figure out if whatever jurisdiction you're talking about or federal agency that you're talking about, you need to see how they classify it in order to see what legal rights attach to it. Yeah, and someone here has noted, I, I, I assume this is right, um, the IRS sometimes will recognize Bitcoin as property and as income, depending on how it's used. So it sounds like it's still kind of slippery. Really complicated, yeah. 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 
I've, I've put a link to the digital commons in the, in the chat as well, in case anyone uh, wants to pursue that. So we are just about out of time and I, I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of this here. So I'm, I'm going to have to insist that you come back another time. And, uh, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I'm and, and I won't let you answer any question with that's going to take a really long time to explain. I, know, I mean, that's the problem. I need, I, I did a whole <laughs> semester on it. That's the problem. Like I'm used no. to having much more time to explain this stuff. And there's no, we condensed a whole semester into like half an hour. And then I asked random questions as well. So, so that probably didn't help either. Um, yeah, and there are still more questions coming in, uh, which is uh, terrible. Oh, somebody also asked for a link to your article. I guess we can also provide that. Uh, yes, if you Google my name, Neats, N-E-I-T-Z, with SSRN, or you can even put Neats Blockchain SSRN, you'll pull up a free uh, SSRN, you know, is the repository of academic literature, and you'll my article is posted there. You can download it for free. It's also great. on my GGU Digital Commons. Oh, it's in there too. So people might be able to find it through that link that I just yeah. posted. All right, great. Well, Michelle, we're, we're totally out of time. I would, I'm sorry about that. I'd love to keep talking. Um, but thank you very much for, for spending some time trying to explain to everybody the, the stuff that you in, your, in law school are teaching to uh, your students. So I really appreciate your time. No problem. It was really fun. Thanks so much. All right. I think there might be some outro music, but if, if not, then we're just going away either way. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> <it's a tight. laughs> all right. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.